Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Today, we're talking about executive privilege, presidential immunity, when you can sue a president, and whether a president can be criminally indicted. And all this is a variation of the same question. Is the president above the law? And if not, what does the rule of law even mean for the president, who's tasked by the Constitution with faithfully executing the laws of the United States? But what if the president violates the law? Who faithfully executes the laws against the president? It's like asking what happens if the referee doesn't play by the rules. Who calls a penalty on the ref? One possible answer given by the Constitution is the people do. Through their representatives in Congress, they can exercise the power of impeachment. The House can gather evidence and file articles of impeachment against a president. The Senate can then hold a trial. And if found guilty, the president will be removed from office. And then, importantly, after impeachment, a president, or an ex-president in this case, can still be criminally indicted, put on trial, and punished, according to the Constitution. The question the Constitution doesn't answer for us is whether a sitting president who has not been impeached may still be subject to ordinary legal process. For example, having to answer a subpoena to produce evidence in a criminal investigation or be a defendant in a court case. And when pressed, presidents have all argued that the office of the president is immune from that kind of ordinary legal process and subject alone to the high bar of impeachment. But courts haven't always bought that argument. For the courts, it depends. Is it a state or federal legal process? Was it civil or criminal? Did the alleged event happen before the person became president? Does it have anything to do with official presidential duties? And you could multiply these questions. The short answer then for the court is, it depends. To help us sort this out today, we'll be talking about Presidents Nixon, Clinton, and Trump. There'll be a surprise cameo from John F. Kennedy. So let's get started with the case of United States versus Nixon. In 1974, in the late stages of the Watergate investigation, with the House of Representatives taking up impeachment hearings against the President of the United States, a federal grand jury indicted former U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell and six other high-level presidential assistants or campaign staffers who had worked with President Nixon. As the New York Times put it in their article covering the story, quote, never before have so many close and trusted advisors of an American president faced criminal accusations in one indictment. All were charged with conspiracy, six with obstruction of justice, two with perjury, and two with making false statements to the FBI or the grand jury or both. It's usually the cover-up and not the crime that gets people in trouble, and the crime they were covering up was the break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1972. There were some guys who broke in, and they were planning to bug phones, take photos of campaign materials, and engage in other illegal political shenanigans. President Nixon was not indicted, but he was named as a co-conspirator, as someone who knowingly conspired to cover up the administration's involvement with the Watergate break-in. And the special prosecutor in the case was a man named Leon Jaworski. 
Jaworski had been appointed to carry out the Watergate investigation by then-acting Attorney General Robert Bork after Nixon had ordered Bork to fire the previous special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, in an attempt to quash an investigation into existing tape recordings of Oval Office conversations involving the president. Those recordings were relevant to this ongoing criminal investigation related to the grand jury indictments of those seven people associated with the president. And as a side note, yes, that's the same Robert Bork whom Ronald Reagan later nominated to the Supreme Court back in the 80s when Joe Biden was then chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Bork's confirmation hearings were particularly nasty, so nasty they gained him the distinction of having his last name turned into a verb that's now defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as, quote, to defame or vilify a person systematically, usually with the aim of preventing his or her appointment to public office. Bork was borked by the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the full Senate then voted him down 42 to 58. But 15 years prior, Bork had fired Archibald Cox and appointed Leon Jaworski as the new special prosecutor for the Watergate investigation. Jaworski then took the same course as Cox and sought a subpoena, basically a written order from a court to hand over some evidence, demanding that Nixon turn over these Oval Office tapes. Nixon refused, and Jaworski took his case against the president to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia and then to the Supreme Court of the United States. And Jaworski actually then argued the case at the Supreme Court during the oral arguments. So here's Jaworski describing the case during oral arguments at the Supreme Court, and you notice his accent from a childhood spent in Waco, Texas. Now, to obtain additional evidence, which the special prosecutor has good reason to believe is in the possession of and under the control of the president, and which it is believed by the special prosecutor is quite important to the development of the government's proof at the trial in the United States versus Mitchell et al. The special prosecutor on behalf of the United States moved for a subpoena ducus tecum, and it is the subpoena here in question. Now, to my mind, there are two interesting arguments in the case connected to our previous discussions of the separation of powers. The first is that Jaworski is a member of the executive branch appointed by the attorney general, and he has a claim against the president. But isn't this just an intra-branch dispute that the Supreme Court should stay out of? It's one member of the executive branch having a dispute with another. This was Nixon's initial argument. And since this was a dispute between the president and a subordinate officer of the executive branch, he said, there's no constitutional case or controversy for the court to hear. The president is the chief executive officer of the United States government. He retains discretion over whether to prosecute a case or maintain some confidentiality in communications. And the president's under no obligation to disclose information to any other executive officer. And so, Nixon argued this was a political question, in line with the criteria set out in Baker v. Carr in 1962, which we've previously discussed, and it wasn't justiciable. But the court heard the argument and responded, not so fast. Remember, we got involved in the dispute in Powell v. McCormick involving a U.S. House representative and a claim against the Speaker of the House. That was an intra-branch dispute, too, and it didn't prevent us from taking that case. It all depends on the specifics of the case. And here are some specific considerations for this case. Under a power granted in Article 2, Section 2, Congress vested in the Attorney General the power to conduct criminal litigation on behalf of the U.S. government and the power to appoint subordinate officers. 
The attorney general then had specific statutory authorization to task the special prosecutor with investigating the Watergate break-in, and the prosecutor was given independence and discretion to pursue that investigation. The specific regulation promulgated by the attorney general even said that the special prosecutor would have the authority to contest the invocation of executive privilege when seeking evidence, and the court here said that so long as this regulation is extant, that has the force of law. And this much was admitted by Robert Bork, who originally wrote the regulation. As he said to a Senate committee under questioning, it's clear and understood on all sides that he has the power to use judicial process to pursue evidence if disagreement with the White House should develop. Given all that, the court says, no, we can hear this case. It isn't just an intra-branch dispute, but it involves a federal regulation under delegated authority to the attorney general. It's a question about the production of evidence in an ongoing criminal investigation. This is a matter of law that we can sort out. It just is a judicial question. And that takes us to the president's second argument. Even if the court can hear this case, the court should side with the president because executive branch communications should be kept confidential, he argued. The president then invoked this concept called executive privilege. The phrase executive privilege is nowhere to be found in the constitutional text, but the president offered two different grounds for this privilege. The first which the court actually granted, was that confidentiality was important for high-level government officials who advise and assist the president in the performance of his duties. If people are going to talk openly and candidly with the president and advise him, they need to be able to know that their communications with him will be kept confidential. The second ground for executive privilege was the separation of powers itself. But here the court concluded that neither the doctrine of the separation of powers nor the need for confidentiality of high-level communications without more can sustain an absolute, unqualified presidential privilege of immunity from judicial process in all circumstances. As is usually the case, context matters. And in their weighing of the claim of executive privilege against legitimate needs of the legal process in this instance, the court came down on the side of the legal process. And thinking of context... Here it might be helpful to remember Justice Robert Jackson's concurrence in Youngstown versus Ohio, the case about Harry Truman's steel seizure order. As Jackson said, presidential power is at its lowest ebb when the president is working against the express will of Congress. And in Nixon's case, he was working against the express will of Congress, which was conducting ongoing impeachment hearings and his own executive branch special prosecutor and the federal judiciary. A different president in different circumstances might have had a different result with the claim of executive privilege, but not Nixon, at least not in 1974. Nixon lost this case in a unanimous decision by a court that included four Nixon appointees. The president's power was at its lowest ebb. The Supreme Court decided the case on July 24th. On August 8th, Nixon resigned as president of the United States. One piece of legislation that emerged in the reforms after Watergate was the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. One of the things the act did was create the U.S. Office of Independent Counsel to investigate government officials. But unlike the special prosecutor that was appointed by the attorney general, the independent counsel was a special prosecutor who was independent of the executive branch altogether. Congress vested the power to appoint that prosecutor in the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And so it's important here that you have Congress creating a prosecutor that's appointed by the judiciary and circumvents the executive branch altogether, and that's by design. That act was then the subject of constitutional dispute in the case of Morrison v. Olson in 1988. 
The D.C. Circuit Court appointed Alexia Morrison as independent counsel to investigate Assistant Attorney General Ted Olson over some dealings with the House subcommittee and the withholdings of some documents from that committee. Ted Olson, incidentally, would go on to successfully argue Bush versus Gore on behalf of George W. Bush in 2000 and then team up with the opposing counsel for Al Gore, David Boies, to bring a case against California's Proposition 8 defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman. And really that litigation from the attorneys in Bush versus Gore teaming up together to take that case started the chain of litigation that ended in the nationalization of same-sex marriage in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. In this case, though, of Morrison versus Olson, Olson was on the losing side. The issue at stake was whether Congress had the authority to delegate to the judiciary the power to appoint this independent prosecutor. For eight members of the court, the answer was yes. In his majority opinion, Chief Justice Rehnquist laid out the argument. It was pretty straightforward. Article 2 says that the president, with the advice and consent of the Senate, will appoint ambassadors, Supreme Court justices, and all other officers of the United States, but that Congress may, by law, vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. Congress, by law, vested the appointment of the independent prosecutor in the D.C. Circuit Court. As far as the constitutionality of the act, then the case was closed, according to Rehnquist. But Justice Scalia provided the court's lone dissent in the case, and his dissent has an element of urgency and alarm. For him, the case was a mortal threat to the separation of powers in the Constitution. Listen to how Scalia described the case. He says, quote, This is what it's all about, power the allocation of power among Congress, the President, and the courts, in such fashion as to preserve the equilibrium the Constitution sought to establish, so that a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department can effectively be resisted. Frequently, an issue of this sort will come up before the court clad, so to speak, in sheep's clothing, The potential of the asserted principle to affect important change in the equilibrium of power is not immediately evident and must be discerned by a careful and perceptive analysis. But this wolf comes as a wolf. If to describe this case is not to decide it, Scalia said, the concept of a government of separate and coordinate powers no longer has meaning. And then he concludes, By its short-sighted action today, I fear that the court has permanently encumbered the republic with an institution that will do it great harm. And this institution, which Scalia thought would do the Republic great harm, is what leads us directly to our next case, Clinton versus Jones, and the question, when can you sue the president? Some background. Paula Jones worked for the Arkansas government back in 1991 when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, and she was working the registration desk at a speech the governor gave at a hotel in Little Rock and alleges that after the speech, an Arkansas state trooper came over to her, invited her to go to a hotel room after the speech where the governor then met her, exposed himself to her, and made sexual advances, which she said she rejected. She then further alleged that she'd been retaliated against at work for her sexual rejection of the governor. Four years later, she sued President Clinton, seeking $175,000 in actual and punitive damages. The initial question for the Supreme Court is, can you sue a sitting president? Can Clinton be sued while he is president? And it wasn't altogether clear. There's not a lot of precedent involving either criminal or civil cases against sitting presidents. Recall, even in the case of Watergate, Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator. No charges had been brought against him. But there was one intriguing precedent to go on involving Clinton's personal hero, John F. Kennedy. 
When Kennedy was running for president in 1960, there's a guy named Hugh Lee Bailey at the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles. Bailey was a state senator from Mississippi, and he was known around those parts as the donkey-riding senator, because he rode a donkey to the state capitol when he was inaugurated in the Senate, and he often rode donkeys in political parades. Kennedy sees him outside of the hotel, waiting for a ride, and he offers to have his car and driver take Bailey and some others to the after-party. On the way there, his driver gets in a wreck, and Bailey sustains injuries serious enough to prevent him from riding a donkey. So then he sues Kennedy for $250,000, in part for the damage he sustained by the loss of his nickname. He can't really ride a donkey anymore, so he can't call himself the donkey-riding senator. By the time the case is filed, Kennedy is now president of the United States, and Kennedy's attorneys initially argue that he can't be sued. When the case looks like it's going to go forward in the district court, though, they decide to settle out of court, and Bailey got $17,500. Clinton's attorneys, though, didn't settle. They also claimed that the president was immune from civil lawsuits during his time in office. Clinton's claim of presidential immunity is one that is rooted in the separation of powers, and at least one argument for it goes like this. The Constitution vests the executive power of the national government in the president of the United States. If the president had to constantly answer civil lawsuits or even criminal complaints, it would be a huge distraction from his official duties. The Supreme Court put it this way in a lawsuit filed against Richard Nixon after he left office. In Nixon v. Fitzgerald in 1982, the court said that immunity from civil lawsuits seeking damages for things a president does in his official capacity is, quote, a functionally mandated incident of the president's unique office, rooted in the constitutional tradition of the separation of powers and supported by our history. In the case of President Clinton, though, the conduct that he was being sued for happened before he became president, similar to Kennedy, and didn't have anything to do with his official duties as president. For that reason, the Supreme Court in Clinton v. Jones allowed the lawsuit to go forward and made a distinction between acts undertaken as part of the official duties of the presidency, on the one hand, and acts undertaken in a private capacity, on the other. And so a unanimous court, in this case, sided against Clinton. And then, of course, we know what happened next. One of the witnesses in the Paula Jones case was Monica Lewinsky, a 22-year-old White House intern who is in a sexual relationship with Clinton. She admitted all this in phone calls to one of her friends, who secretly recorded the calls and then turned them over to Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr had been appointed independent counsel by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals under this act that had been passed after Watergate. And Starr was asked to look into some other possibly criminal matter involving a real estate development corporation that Clintons had invested in when they were in Arkansas. And this revelation about Monica Lewinsky then took everything in a different direction. Clinton was soon questioned under oath about his relationship with Lewinsky, which he denied, and then he was found in contempt of court for lying under oath. And for that, Clinton was fined, disbarred, and impeached by the House, but not convicted by the Senate. And then he settled the lawsuit with Paula Jones for $850,000. That whole fallout from this case takes us immediately back to Morrison versus Olson and Justice Scalia's comment in dissent that the wolf comes as a wolf. And the wolf, in this case, led the investigation that ended in Clinton's impeachment by the House, but acquittal by the Senate in 1998. There's one other president in the modern era who's been impeached by the House and acquitted by the Senate, and that, of course, is President Donald Trump. In the last term, the Supreme Court heard two cases against President Trump, and the cases are relevant to some of the questions that we're asking in this episode. Those two cases are Trump versus Mazars USA and Trump versus Vance. Each had to do with subpoenas requesting President Trump's tax returns and financial records in connection with ongoing investigations. Let's take them one at a time. 
Trump versus Mazars USA has to do with a subpoena issued by the House of Representatives, and the subpoenas were to several third-party organizations, including Trump's personal accounting firm, Mazars USA. On separation of powers grounds, the court held that Congress could not subpoena the president's private personal records without very good reasons. And the court then laid out what those reasons might be and vacated and remanded the case, meaning they sent it back to the lower court to try again with these new considerations in place. So no resolution yet in that case. Trump versus Vance has to do with a different kind of subpoena against Trump's accounting firm, one issued not by a coordinate branch of the federal government, but by a state government, and in this case, the state of New York. New York has an ongoing investigation into the legality of payments made to Stormy Daniels for a non-disclosure agreement she signed during the 2016 presidential election. And the non-disclosure agreement was to keep her quiet about an affair that she had with Trump. The Supreme Court in that case held that the Constitution doesn't categorically preclude the state of New York from subpoenaing Trump's private records. Then they listed some questions that would be relevant to the resolution of the case, and they remanded it back to the lower court. Legally, what this means is that Trump has no absolute immunity that protects his financial records from being subpoenaed, even by a state. Now, if your head's spinning from all these cases, it's okay. Mine is, too, a little bit. So here's a summary. The executive power of the United States is vested in the president. Does that mean that the president is somehow above the law? No, but a lot of presidents have argued that they're immune from criminal prosecution and civil lawsuits during their presidency. This makes a certain kind of sense. The president's the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, tasked with making sure the laws are faithfully executed. But if that's the case, who's going to enforce the law against the president? One possible answer is Congress, but through the mechanism of impeachment. And then once removed from office, a former president could, of course, face whatever criminal penalty or civil liability the law demands. This is a gray area in constitutional law, and the few cases we have leaves us with something like the following in question and answer format. Must the president comply with a subpoena from a special counsel within the executive branch? Yes. Can Congress issue a subpoena seeking personal information about the president? Maybe, but we need to be careful because of the separation of powers issue and the potential for abuse of this power. Can a state prosecutor issue a subpoena seeking personal information about the president if it's relevant to a criminal investigation? Yes, but the president gets a chance to make the case that his duties demand that he not comply with the subpoena. Can the president be held liable for damages in civil cases? Yes and no. If it's for something he did before he became president, or something unrelated to presidential duties, then yes. If it's for something he did in the course of his official duties as president, then no. Can the president be prosecuted in a criminal case? I don't know. No president's ever been indicted for a crime while they were in office, and the Constitution specifically lays out impeachment as the remedy for high crimes and misdemeanors. The consequence of impeachment is only removal from office, and then after that, an ex-president can be criminally indicted, at least according to the Constitution. This is precisely why Gerald Ford issued a blanket pardon to Richard Nixon, quote, for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from January 20th, 1969, Nixon's inauguration day, through August 9th, 1974, the day Nixon resigned. And in this pardon, there's a recognition that the president is not above the law, that he remained liable to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law after he left office, and that the lawful use of the pardon power authorized by the Constitution was itself a way to move beyond Watergate and to restore the rule of law. And so the case of Nixon offers us a model of how the Constitution maintains the rule of law in practice. Nixon wasn't above the law, but he was never indicted. He resigned before he was impeached, and then he was pardoned preemptively for anything he might have done during his presidency. Accountability for Nixon came from high-level constitutional politics. 
and not simply law. And it's the constitutional structure that should ensure here that not even the president is above the law.